I'd like to welcome everybody who's listening to this, um, to the Axe Church Podcast. Um, we are uh, doing something different today. Uh, we have been posting uh, our sermons up onto the podcast uh, as we've been working through the Book of Romans. However, as we've been working through the Book of Romans, um, there are some highly controversial, um, to some, uh, topics in the Book of Romans and uh, in the middle of working this out and, and studying and exegeting through the book of Romans, um, we have had questions arise uh, about some of the stances that we have, what we believe is biblical, um, in regards to Reformed theology. And the whole point of this is to really begin to just educate um, and to let people know what we actually believe and why we believe it. Um, and I think that one of the things that we see is just in some of the people that we've talked to or some of the things that we've heard said about uh, this view, um, which is, we believe, uh, absolutely consistent and biblical. Um, the one thing that we've seen just based on the questions or some of the responses is that people really don't understand um, what we believe. And, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions. I think there's a lot of ignorance in a... In the truest definition of that word, I think people have no idea. Um, and you know, one of my things that my wife has always taught me, uh, which was hard for me to grasp at first, is that if you're going to have a side, if you're going to have a point or a stance, then you need to know the other side, the opposite side, and you need to do as much much research into that opposite side as yours, so you can be clearly informed and not to make irrational uh, assumptions or false accusations. And and that's the whole point of this, is because there's nothing that we're going to say, there's nothing that we're going to say in this uh, these podcasts, however many different episodes there'll be in, uh, in this series of Reformed Theology. Um, we plan on uh, working through some text, uh, working through and exegeting those. We plan on answering specific questions, specific topics, um, spe- uh, rebuttals to specific things that... Um, the Arminian side would say that, see, this absolutely refutes the uh, Reformed theology aspect of it. So we may have different episodes on this, but there's nothing that you're going to hear that we don't go to Scripture and say, look, here's what this says. So we must be very careful, I do believe, on what we say about people. Um, there are... Um, there are differences, I believe, um, in what I in our side, the Reformed side versus the Arminian side. However, we must be very careful not to uh, go against Scripture and start to uh, tear down and to fill our souls with hatred or slander towards one another. Um, you know, this is a like I said, a highly controversial topic. However, let let me say this up front. For those who are children of God, you are brothers and sisters in Christ with me. And and listen, I can differ with you on your view. I can differ on how you interpret something. But if you're a child of God, we must be very careful to not bring false accusations and slander. Um, you know, th- this brings out hostility in people. I can tell you just from the short period of time, just over the last several weeks and months, um, people uh, have really... Um, just, I, I can't even explain to you what we've seen. Uh, we've seen hatred. I mean, it has been uh, a lot of slander. And, um, you know, I believe that that the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of salvation. I believe that He's the only way to heaven. And I believe that uh, without Him, there is no hope of eternal life. And how we get to that may look a little different. However, you know, I have been called uh, a, a, a false teacher. I've been told that, uh, that I'm leading people astray into the end-time apostasy. I have been told that, uh, that I am uh, in, in a cult, so to speak. Um, and, and these things are just absolutely crazy to me. Uh, because a lot of these things that are being said, it's, people have no idea what they're even talking about. And I think that we must be very careful. We must uh, be careful with our tongue, our words, our actions, uh, and we must be very careful of what we say against the authority of Scripture. And that's the point of what we're doing here. The, the point of what we're doing is to really begin to show what Reformed theology is all about. Because, sadly enough, it seems to be the minority view um, around, around, especially in this area. And that's amazing to me. Because if you look back in church history, it was just the opposite. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But... Uh, 
we have to be mindful and we have to ask ourselves this question. For everyone who's listening to this, here's the question that you have to ask yourself. In this question, when when I began to feel the call to be a pastor and a minister of God's Word, um, I was teaching a Sunday school class, and one of the, th- the, the questions that I just kept coming back to was, why do you believe what you believe? And we had even extended that out into... Um, the Sunday school class we were teaching, we asked that question, why do you believe what you believe? And I believe that is a uh, absolutely necessary question to ask yourself. Why do you believe what you believe? And here's the, here's the reality. If you ask a lot of people that question, the question gets answered by this. Well, um, I, was, I was taught that as a child, or I heard the preacher say that, or my grandparents taught me this, or my Sunday school teacher taught me this. And if we're not careful, we start to miss the mark. We start to miss why we believe what we believe. The answer has to be that we have went to the authority of the Scripture. We've looked it up ourselves. We have examined. We've prayed about it. We've put it into context, not just ripping verse out of context and having these standalone verses, but we have to begin to understand and ask ourselves, why do you believe what you believe? And I feel like so, so many times we're so um, hesitant to question anything that we've ever been taught. And if, if we look at it in a different perspective, it's almost like we put human beings almost to the authority of God, almost to the authority of His Word. Because, you know, if my grandpa taught me this, then, then no one else, I mean, it doesn't matter. Even if I read it word for word in the Bible, that it's something different than what I've been taught. But we say, no, he could not be wrong, ever. You see what happens very quickly? Instead of letting the authority of Scripture and letting the Bible speak for itself, we hold on to traditions and our biases and our presuppositions. And we come down to the the view of, well, this person taught me this. This is what I've always been taught. This is what always they've been preaching to me. That's not the answer. And we have this as clear example in Scripture. Again, we had just mentioned this in a sermon we did just a couple days ago, that if it is not in the Bible, then it is your opinion. And that's why when we start to work through this series, we're going to take you to Scripture. We're going to go in Scripture. We're going to exegete through Scripture. This isn't going to be just out of the blue. This is what we think. And we just, we're guessing. We believe that we can take you to Scripture, and with Reformed theology, there is absolutely consistency. And you have to ask yourself, what is most consistent? What view can answer all these questions? What view can be consistent from one chapter of a book to the next one? From verse to verse, what is most consistent? What, what one, which view does not make you take a circle and try to hammer it into a square box? That's why it's important to understand that there is nothing higher than the authority of the Bible. Your grandfather does not supersede the authority of the Bible. Your parents do not supersede the authority of the Bible. Your Sunday school teachers do not assert the, uh, uh, supersede the authority of the Bible. And neither do you, and neither do I. That is why we must submit to the authority of the Scripture. And you have to ask yourself, is that what we're doing? I think it's sad part in our churches today where if you stood up and you asked them basic theological questions that no one would have a clue how to answer that in a deep meaningful way. We would be superficial in our answers. We would quote a few verses or we may have no idea how to even answer the question on our own. Um, And and when being pressed, we would have no really uh, profound answer because we're very surface level and we just take what people have explained to us or taught us, and we just are content with that. However, Paul tells us to do something different. And we see this story play out in the book of Acts. And, you know, here's the deal. There's no one here that is uh, that can claim that they are uh, more qualified to uh, give the Word of God than Paul, than to teach it. And we see this uh, amazing ministry that Paul had. And, listen, if, if we, we are scared to question our own people that are around us. However, there was a certain group of people in the Bible, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, who did just that. They did not just listen to what Paul said 
and say, well, this is the Apostle Paul, so therefore, whatever he says, he has to be true, and they just, we'll just take his word for it. That's not what they did. And we have scripture that gives us clear indication, a clear mandate to do what these people in Berea were doing. In chapter 17, verses 10 on, it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. So this group, they just left Thessalonica. They come to Berea. And these group of pe- this group of people, these people here, are considered more noble. And then it tells you why. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I mean, think about that. Are you afraid to, to question what your grandpa said? Question what your dad said? Question what your friend said? Let us never reach that level of idolatry because they are human. We are all human. And the thing that is in without error is the Bible. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach us? And here's what we are called to do as Christians, and this is where it comes down to the crux of the matter. As Christians, we are called to believe what the Bible says is true, not what we want the Bible to say is true. In Reformed theology, when you see it on the pages, when you see the sovereignty of God, when you see all these things come to light, it's not hard to see. Now, but what is hard to do is to swallow it. It's hard to accept this because it goes against our human nature. It goes against the selfish or the selfishness of humanity. It goes against our sinful flesh. It goes with our sinful flesh. I'm sorry. Excuse me. It goes right along with it. That's why it's so hard to swallow. And then that's why the questions come up. That's not fair. How could a loving God do this? What about the whosoever's? All these things. All these things, they're in Scripture. God gives us the answer to them. However, do we want to move forward and believe what the Bible says, even if it goes against our feelings or our emotions or our traditions, etc.? What is your primary focus in your life when it comes to the Bible? Holding on to what you've always been taught, even if you know that it says something that's contrary to the Bible? Or do we want to believe what the Bible says, not what we want it to say? There's a huge difference there. And that's why, listen, I'm going to be up front. These doctrines, at first, they're hard, to, they're hard to, to get your head around and they're hard to grasp sometimes because it just goes against everything we've been taught. And that is the point of why we're doing this. Is, and I'm going to be honest with you as well, too. You know, I think, like I said at the start, there are a lot of people who make up preconceived ideas about what Reformed theology is. And, and they bring all these false accusations, and they bring this ignorance about the topic and about the view to the, the, the conversation, and they have no idea what they're talking about. And, and listen, it, it, I, I've been on both sides. I was raised in the Arminian viewpoint all my life, and I am just like pretty much every person that I've talked to uh, that is in the Arminian view or that has uh, seen the light of the gospel and saw that the Bible is uh, consistent with Reformed theology. Because here's what happens. There's a struggle here. And if you would have, if you would have presented me with these scriptures that I'm going to present throughout these, these few episodes here on this podcast, I would have said the same thing. That's ridiculous. That's unbiblical. That's not the way it is. Because I had no idea who God was, and I had no idea what the Scripture said. I've been there. I have been on both sides of this. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt in my soul, I've never experienced true freedom, true peace, true amazement of God's grace like I have learning the doctrines of grace set forth in the Bible. So, I know the struggle is there. I know it's hard. I know it's not just a flip of the switch and here we go and now we just everything makes sense to us. That's not how it goes. It is sometimes months and years to fully grasp this and fully get your head around it. There are people that are some of the greatest theologians of our day uh, that have been advocates for Reformed theology, who spent year and year in seminary 
fighting and struggling with this until they understand that once you let the Bible be the Bible, once you take away all your presuppositions and your traditions, and you let the Bible be the Bible, and you surrender to what it actually says, then then you see these views come into play. And they begin to change your soul. They begin to change your life. But it's not easy to get there. And we just hope that God uses this to start to work in people's lives. Listen, I can't make anyone change their opinion. If you are an Arminian, you believe what you believe. I can say nothing in these podcasts to make you change your mind. That's just a given. Because it is only a work of the Holy Spirit. It is only He who changes our souls, who brings to light the things of God. That's how we know anything. First Corinthians chapter 2 says that it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we see the spiritual things of God. And that's the peace. Knowing that God is sovereign, that we, we can have these uh, discussions, we can present this material, but at the end of the day, it's all on God. And if you come to see these glorious truths, then you thank God because it's all from Him. And if you don't, it's because that God did not want you to have your eyes open to this at this moment in time. I believe that God is sovereign. This is what this whole thing comes down to. I believe that the Reformed doctrine is a God-centered approach. It starts with God and works its way down to man. And I believe the Arminian view starts with man and works its way up to God. I have one question to start off with before we get into this a little bit more. Does the potter have absolutely total freedom and right to do whatever he wants with the clay? That's what's at stake here. The power of God, the sovereignty of God. Does the potter have full freedom to do whatever he wants to with the clay. I don't know too many Christians who would come to this point at that question and say, yes, the the potter has all right to do whatever he wants to the clay, and the clay can't argue back, and the clay can't demand anything of the potter. You see how this turns so quickly? Because in one breath, we'll say the potter has full right. He has made the clay. He can do anything he wants to the clay. And then in the next verse, when it comes to salvation, we automatically switch and we say, no, 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 he can't. He's dependent on us. He's waiting on us. He can't do anything without us. That's not fair. He can't do that. How could he want to do that? Oh, he can't do that because I don't think that's fair. You see how quickly it turns? What is the most consistent view of Scripture? I believe when the Bible says that the potter has the full freedom, it's the potter's freedom. He can do whatever he wants to the clay. It's his clay. None of us would even be alive without him. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that everything exists from him, and it's through him. We exist for him. We must never forget that. So many times when we look at these things, we think, well, what's the point of life? Well, why uh, me being happy is the ultimate thing. Uh, we even have it put into our, our uh, constitution and all of our uh, framing documents. We say that, that we have the uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's all about our happiness. And, and God wants me to be happy. And life's all about me. And salvation's all about me. And God can't do this because he has to be fair to everybody. And he has to... He is fair to everybody. Well, not not to an extent. There's a group of people that he is not fair to, but it's not the ones that the Arminian side would say that he's unfair to. You see? That this God can do whatever he wants. That this God is why we exist. Life is not about you. And life is not about me. Salvation is not even about you and me. Yes, it is a blessing. Yes, we get to reap the reward of it. Yes, we get to have the fellowship with God. But all things are from Him. All things are through Him. And all things are to Him. 
That's the ultimate fulfillment of everything is God. It, it, everything exists for God. It, salvation is for God. It, it, the, the ones that have been given from the Father to the Son, it, they're, they're a gift to the Son. They ultimately will be brought back to the Son. It's not about you and me. Do you see, this theology is God down. It is from God that we live and move and have our being. It is from this God that we exist. It is from this God that we have salvation. It is all to Him. Does God owe you anything? Does God owe you a single thing? Have you ever brought anything to God that He would repay you? Think about that question. Does the potter have the right to do what he wants with the clay? Have you brought anything to God that he would repay you? Have you done anything where God would say, well, now you've done this, so therefore I owe you this? We sometimes think that in salvation. Well, God, I brought you my decision. I brought you my choice. You wanted to save me. You're omnipotent. You do all that you please. You're sovereign over everything. But you couldn't do it without me. You owe me salvation because I accepted you. I asked you into my heart. Again, these things are unbiblical. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you invite him into your heart. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything either. Until we understand that, we don't understand the point of all this. It all comes down to this. We don't know who God is. That's the absolute truth. We can say we know who God is. We can think we know who God is. We have no idea who God is. Because if we knew who He is and His holiness, and we knew who we are, then our mouths would be closed a lot more than they are. We would never look up to the potter and say, You have to do this my way. You have to save everyone exactly the same or else you're not fair. Who in the world do we think we are? We have no idea who God is. God owes salvation to no one. Not one person. Are you any different? I'm not. I, I, he doesn't owe me anything. In one breath we say, oh, everybody deserves to be in hell. It, he is perfect and he's just if he sends everyone to hell. That's fair. And in the next breath we demand that he offer the same mercy to everyone. You see how inconsistent that is? The fact that this God who is holy and sovereign and cannot look upon sin with any kind of approval. This God who one sin is worth eternal damnation. This God who is holy. This God owes me nothing. And he owes you nothing. And if he sent every one of us to hell tonight. Then he would be perfectly just in doing that. We have no idea who God is. The fact that God has had mercy on one human being is more than any human could ever deserve. But do you see when we start with ourselves and we say, he's got he's to give everybody the same chance. Why? If we want justice, then everyone's in hell. Everyone in hell will have gotten what they were due. Absolute justice. There's not one person that's going to be in hell that did not get justice. That's not, that's not the unfair part. We say, God has to, how could a loving God, how could anybody do this? Well, we're going to answer those questions. But I want you to remember this one thing. As we cry, that's unfair. That's the, that's the, that's the mantra of, of humanity, isn't it? That's not fair. Do you know why we say that? Because we don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. All those times we say, that's not fair. Those are the people that in Romans 9, Paul is rebuking. 
Think about that just for a second. If you come to these texts and these verses and these thoughts and you say, that's injustice. Well, in Romans 9, Paul says, what? You think God is unjust? He's calling you out. And if you say, well, the potter can't do that. He, he has to give everybody the equal chance. This loving God can't do this. Then you know what? He's speaking to you in Romans 9 a little farther down when he says, who are you, O man, to look up to the potter? You clay and say, why did you do this? Why did you make me this way? The reason that we're so arrogant and the reason that we lift these war cries to heaven is because we don't know who God is. Everyone in hell has gotten perfect justice. And that's the state of every human being that has ever been born on this planet. After the fall of Adam, we are all born into sin. And if we want fair, we want just, then we all deserve hell. And the fact that God would have mercy on one is more than he's required to do because he's required to do nothing. We say that's not fair. Do you know it's not fair? The one in hell, that's fair. But the one in heaven, that's not fair. Because there's two groups of people. Those who have gotten and received justice for their sinful ways, those are the ones in hell. And the ones in heaven are those who God has shown mercy. Because the Bible says He will show mercy on whom He will have mercy. And He will harden who He wants to harden. He's the potter. He can do that. And if we raise our voice and say, no, He can't. I would challenge you to read Romans 9. And see the rebuttal. That Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is he's rebuttaling those things because God can do what he wants to do. We'll get into more of that. I just wanted to share that we, we have to understand that God is sovereign and that God is in complete control of this universe. And he has the freedom to do whatever he wants. It's God-down approach. This is what this doctrine is, not man up. He, he, it, we'll get into that a little bit more. What about Reformed theology? What does that name mean? Well, let me say what it is not. Because, again, here comes the ignorance of um, just not knowing what this doctrine is. It is not Calvinism. Okay, first of all, that is a term that gets used. It's a term that gets used in a derogatory term. Uh, People that are just lacking of knowledge say that's a cult. They don't know what it is. My doctrine that I believe is biblical. I follow the Bible, not some man. Now, did John Calvin, did he believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But however, we don't go around talking about the other side being uh, Arminians. We don't say, hey, listen, there's a Christian and there's, a, there's an Arminian. We don't say that. Because we, we have so defined what Reformed theology is down to one word. I, I do not label myself as that because I don't follow one man. And if you are an Arminian, you have to be a little bit uh, understanding of that because you don't say, you don't have people going around saying, well, you're an Arminian. Not a Christian, you're an Arminian. You see, we have to be sensitive to one another. Christians, we're all Christians, and I don't follow a man. It's not Calvinism, okay? John Calvin was a man who believed the Bible and the doctrines of grace. I don't follow one man. Just as the other side, if you're listening to this and you're Arminian, you're not an Arminian in the sense that you follow Jacobus Arminius. You don't do that. So I think there needs to be equal respect on both sides. And, and those who say that this is a cult, um, be very careful um, because everything we say is going to be lined up with Scripture. You may disagree with the interpretation, um, but we must be very careful with our words. What is Reformed theology? Well, we, we can see these doctrines not just dating back to Calvin. Like I said, they go all the way back to Paul. Paul Paul taught this. The Old Testament teaches this. Everything teaches this. It's consistent with Scripture. But what is Reformed theology? Why that term? Well, in the Dark Ages, the late, or the, around the 14, 15, 1600s, even around that time period, in the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church had began to um, get away from the biblical standards more and more. And they began to impose uh, man-made traditions, man-made doctrines. Um, and it became a time where the authority of the Scripture was not the, the rule of faith. It was the Pope and, and all these other man-made traditions. Um, 
and the gospel had been blinded. The gospel had been shadowed. It had been eclipsed by all these uh, man-centered doctrines and views. And one man, Martin Luther, um, who in 1517, October 31st, 1517, uh, in a stance against the doctrines of works um, and the different inaccurate views that the Roman Catholic Church had put on people, Martin Luther, in his infamous um, 95 Thesis, he stapled the 95 Thesis to the Church of Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. And within a matter of not a long time at all, Martin Luther was a rebel. He was an outcast. He was excommunicated from the church uh, because he stood on sola fide, by faith alone. It is by God that we are saved, not by works, not by a decision, not by anything of that nature. But it is by God's grace alone. And it is by faith as the tool to which that comes about. And he was exiled, and, and there were death threats on his life. And in, uh, at the Diet of Worms in Germany, in 1521, he stood before a, a council there between the emperor and the pope and all those who had gathered. And in his infamous speech, he said, I cannot go against my conscience. Uh, I'm not, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture, I can't go against my conscience, neither safe nor right. So therefore, he doesn't recant. And he said, here I stand, here I am. I'm going back to the authority of the Word. And the reason that it's called the Reformed theology is that our minds and the doctrines and everything are being basically reformed to what they were before this eclipsing of the gospel. It is a bringing back of the mind to the sovereignty of God, to the doctrines of grace. It is that reason that as our minds are being transformed to what it was before all this um, this darkening and this uh, blocking out of the true gospel before all that had happened. We want to go back to that. And that is the point of Reformed theology, that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over all things in this universe. And, you know, we, we had said, and we had mentioned earlier, that we, we think that, you know, and we look around that the Reformed doctrine seems to be the minority and the Arminian view seems to be the majority. However, uh, this was not the case in these times uh, because Arminianism came about as a rebuttal of what you would know as Calvinism today, um, that this doctrines of grace, the Arminian view, Jacobus Arminius, he brought about these uh, rebuttals and, and he brought about how this is inaccurate. He was going against the established view at the time. And he, there were several councils that he came up, uh, in front of, including the Synods of Dort. And his view was considered a heresy and was not allowed in the church. And we look back at history and we say, well, this is just a, it's just a cult and, and uh, there's not too many people here that really follow this. I, I'm just going to go through and just list some of these people that you may have heard of, that you may have even quoted, that you may have even posted about, and you know some of these names. These are people that are, again, reformed in doctrine. The, the, thing that, uh, the thing that seems to be the minority now was not at the time because it seems like the darkening of theology, just like it was in these ages before the Reformation, it seems like we're going back to that. You know, the, the, the saying of the Reformation was post Tenenbrauch's lux, which means after darkness, light. It was the glory of the gospel. It was sola scriptura, by scripture alone. There was five solas, meaning alone. It was sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, sola de gloria, and sola scriptura, that is by faith alone, by uh, grace alone, through Christ alone, by scripture alone, and to God alone be the glory. Again, this is the God-centered approach. We believe that the Bible is true when he says that all things are from him and through him and to him. And there were great men of the faith who were reformed in their doctrines. Listen to some of these names. Augustus Toplady. He, sing, he wrote one of my favorite songs of all time, Rock of Ages. That song, Rock of Ages, that we know 
That is one of the most deeply theologically rich songs that has ever been written. It talks about our righteousness not being in us, but in Christ. It talks about his imputed righteousness and simply to the cross we cling. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Augustus Toplady, he wrote that song that many of you sing, knew the truth of the gospel and was reformed in his view. A.W. Pink, B.B. Warfield from Princeton Theological Seminary. We have Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. Many of you know him. He was also reformed. We have George Whitfield. We have J.C. Ryle. We have John Calvin. We have John Gresham Machen. We have John Fox. Many of you have read the the Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was reformed. We have John Knox. We have John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And, and, and I've said this before. I've sung Amazing Grace so many years in my life, but only until I understand the beauty that is in this doctrine can I ever finally see the beauty in those words, Amazing Grace. Let me stop right there and just say this. What is grace? Well, we have our standard version of definition that we go by. We say grace. It's unmerited favor. Think about that just for a second. Unmerited means you've done nothing to earn it. You've done nothing to receive it. Unmerited. Unmerited favor. You've done nothing. If you have done anything to receive it, then it's no longer grace. But how many times do we think that's the key? God cannot save us. This omnipotent God, who is the one who spoke the world into existence, he can't save me unless I give him permission. Stop and think about that just for a second. You know that that doesn't sound good to even say, but that's the view that we have to, exp- uh, to hold in our Minionism. And we say, well, yes, yeah, he saves me because I Open my heart. I accepted him. He was dependent on me. And now, now that I've accepted him, now that I've opened the door, I've done something now, so therefore I will receive his grace. That's no longer grace. See, we take these words and we just throw them out there. We don't even know what they mean. We just recite the same. Unmerited favor. Well, did you do anything for salvation? Well, no. Well, I, but we really mean yes, because God can't save us without us. We have to do something. If we don't do something, such as accept him, such as open our hearts, etc., etc., then he can't save us. And if that's the view you hold, what you've done is you've eliminated the true definition of grace. He saved me with his amazing grace. Not because of anything I've done, but because of him. Let us be careful on how we use these words. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, knew that grace. He was reformed in his doctrine. John Owen, Jonathan Edwards. Many of you have heard that cited from a pulpit before. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was the 18th century evangelist and preacher who wrote that, one of the most powerful sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was also reformed. He was also believing this doctrine that is so consistent in the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Luther, Matthew Henry. And the list goes on and on and on. And on the Arminian view, the one name that many of you may know is John Wesley. It's kind of an uneven uh, list. You see, we've got it flipped. We have to know church history. John Wesley believed in The Arminian view that man could rise up out of total depravity and do something that the Bible says they can't do, which is choose God on their own. John Wesley would then go on to start uh, holiness churches because John Wesley believed that one could be perfect and if you were truly righteous and you were truly filled with the Holy Spirit, then you would never sin again in your life. He's the well-known Arminian. But history is stacked with those who are reformed in the faith. Again, all that means is we're taking our mind back to the Scripture. Scripture, sola scriptura. 
Not man-made traditions, not man-made doctrines, but we go to the authority of Scripture and we renew our minds, we renew our theology back to what it was before these dark times and eclipsing of the truth of God's Word. You see, we've got it all backwards where we say that, oh, those who believe that are the minority. Well, they may be now, but all through church history, they were not. And I believe that now, Instead of after darkness, light, we're at, we are post lux tenebras, after light, darkness. What's at stake with this? What's at stake is the sovereignty of God. We will have no problems quoting Psalm 115.3. The Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Do we say that God wants something and doesn't get it? Do we say that we are more sovereign than God? That's what's at stake, the sovereignty of God. R.C. Sproul said this so beautifully. He says, every Christian will say that God is sovereign, but it takes about five minutes of talking to that person to realize that there's not 5% of all Christians who believe God is sovereign. We believe that God is sovereign over 99%, but not salvation. We say that God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants in the universe, in history. He can do anything He wants. God is in full control. He's the potter. He can do whatever He wants with the clay. He is fully sovereign. Is He sovereign over salvation? And we say, yeah, about that. Um, No, He can't be. Why? As R.C. says, If there's one maverick molecule in this universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then He is not God. Let us begin to think, why do you believe what you believe? You know, this comes down to a a point of election and God choosing. And we're going to get into this. I know the questions that have been asked. How is that fair? How could a loving God do this? What about the whosoevers? It seems to be that is the word that instead of actually looking at consistency of Scripture from start to finish, we get on our whosoever soapbox and there's no rational thought. Why do we believe what we believe? Let me give you a little Um, a preview of that word whosoever. That that word that people hold on to and repeat and repeat and repeat. That word wasn't in the original Greek language when the scripture was written. Does that change things? You see, we have to ask ourselves a question. Could we ever be wrong? Could we ever be wrong I've been wrong. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest things to ever do is stand in front of people, stand in front of a congregation, and say, I've been an heir. But we have to ask ourselves, what is more important? Holding on to our traditions, even though we know they may be wrong, even if we see they're wrong, all for the sake of pride? Or is the truth of the Scripture more important than our reputation and our pride? Could you be wrong? Does that change the things? If your answer has been, I'm a whosoever, and now we'll talk about this and dive into it a little bit farther. What if you find out, because it's true, that that word that you cling to is not in the original language. It is not in the Greek when it was written. What do you do? Do you believe what the Bible teaches and what it says? Or do you believe what you want it to say? This is not something to play around with. This is the word of the living God In this view, this doctrine, this Reformed theology, if nothing else, it will do one thing. It will give all the glory to God. Think about that just for a second. 
when we say this is all from God. It is God and God alone. And the Arminian side says, no, it's not. It has to be you. You have to make the choice. Think about what is at stake here. You may disagree. But as what my wife said so beautifully and so perfectly, she said, if we all get to heaven and God comes to us who believe the Reformed doctrines and He comes up and He says, Sean, you were wrong. However, I appreciate that you gave me all the glory. If I'm going to err, I'm going to be on that side. But think about what we say. Those who do not agree that God is sovereign over everything and that God does not always get what He wants and that God is not fair if He doesn't do it your way. Think about what you're saying to the other side. You're leading people astray by giving God all the glory. You're leading people astray because you say God is sovereign. That's what it comes down to. People don't like it. It's hard to swallow. It goes against our fleshly feelings. But it's the truth. And those of you who have fought it and now believe it, myself included, you will know that there's nothing sweeter on the other side of it. It is the most beautiful, humbling doctrine there is. It is not one that makes you puff up and say, look at me. It is one that does the opposite. It is not the one who says, I chose this there, so therefore. It brings you to your face in humility because you know it is only by the mercy of God. And without Him, you have no hope. What is wrong with that? It's consistent and it's scriptural. We don't like the fact that God chooses. We don't like that. But here's where it even gets more non-consistent. What is consistency? We want to look at the consistency. If you ask a Christian today, they'll say, do you believe that God chose Israel as His holy nation? And they'll say, yes, absolutely, because the Bible says it is. That's true. He chose Israel. Did Israel choose Him? No. Why did God choose Israel? Because they deserved it? Because they made a choice? No. Did He keep Israel? Because they were righteous and they were outstanding in their walk of faith? No. He says, I chose you for my own purpose. See, we have no problem that He chose Israel. That's fine. We have no problem that he, that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he tells us that he, he raised Pharaoh up for one thing so that God's purpose in him could be seen and that God's power could be shown. And then he hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is why Pharaoh was brought into this world. It was for his purpose. And his purpose was to bring glory to God. You see, this is God-centered. All things are from him and through him and to him. And we exist for him. Do we say that's fair? We must be careful not to say that's fair because that's what God did. Those were his words. I raised you up for this purpose, Pharaoh. We have no problem that he chose Israel. We have no problem that he said to Pharaoh, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that I might be proclaimed, my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. So he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens who he desires. Is that fair to you in your mind that he hardened Pharaoh? We must be careful. If we say, well, that's not fair, then what we've done is we've called God unjust because he did it. You see what is consistent. Pharaoh was raised up for this. His heart was hardened. Are we okay with that? We're okay with Israel. We're okay with Pharaoh. What about Paul? I always have tried to figure out how someone would explain to me how Paul was seeking God 
in his conversion experience. We say God is, we are all seeking God and, and we have to ask him into our heart. And the Bible says no such thing. The Bible says that no one seeks God. You see, again, we're asking our human fallen self to do something the Bible says we can't do. And we'll get into that more because that's going to come into free will. That's the question. Do we have free will? Well, let me answer that now and then I'll explain it later. Yes. Every human being has free will. And the free will that we all love so much is actually our curse. And we'll explain that. But Paul in Acts 9, he's, he's just been there as Stephen has been stoned. He's persecuting the church and he's on his way to Damascus to continue his persecution. And then the altar call was given and he opened his heart and asked Jesus in. You know that's not what it says. It's not scriptural. But rather, God met him. He's the one who seeks and saves. He blinded Paul. He knocked him to the ground. And in verse 15, speaking to Ananias, who was going to go speak to Paul, Ananias didn't want to go do it because he knew the history of Paul. But listen to what the Lord says to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How do we explain that? Paul wasn't seeking him. He was seeking to persecute Christians, and in that one day, Christ changed him and set him free. And then we're told that God said he's a chosen instrument. You see, where's the consistency? We're okay with him choosing uh, Pharaoh to harden and to bring him up for uh, those particular things in the Old Testament. We're okay with him choosing Israel. But we're not okay with him choosing Paul. You may even be okay that he's choosing Paul. What about Mary? There are some people that I have no idea how this is even, how this even is to be explained. They'll say, well, Mary could have told the angel no. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do we believe that, that God, who has decreed all things before the foundation of the world, his plan would get interrupted because Mary would say no. And there is no plan B. There's no plan B. Plan A is running flawlessly, full steam ahead, and there's never going to be a need for plan B because what God has decreed will come to pass. Do we believe that Mary could have said no? Of course not. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her some will say, well, yeah, look look at the end of that, that in her prayer there, in her response, she's saying, well, yeah, so it, let it be. Yeah, I'll be in agreement with you. But that's not what he, she's saying. It's a fiat. And this fiat is saying this. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 38. Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the womb of the Lord. May it be done... To me, according to your word, she's not giving permission. She's saying, just like Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. You, whatever you speak, let it be done. It is your decree. It is your will. To say that Mary could have said no and God would have had to go to plan B is crazy. That God had favor on her and chose her before the foundation of the world. So we have Pharaoh, no problem being chosen. We have no problem with Israel being chosen. We have no problem with Paul being chosen. And we have Mary that is overpowered by the Spirit of God. What about John the Baptist? As he's in the womb and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, leaping. Did he ask for the Holy Spirit in the womb? No. He was a forerunner, prophesied in the Old Testament. 
Again, we must be consistent. Could Judas have said no? Some will say that he could have. That's incorrect. The Bible says that he knows whom he's chosen, even the one of perdition, to be the one of destruction. John 17 says the high priestly prayer as Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I've kept everyone that you've given me. I've not lost one of them, except for the one who is destined for destruction, son of perdition. Why? So that scripture could be fulfilled. Can you imagine that? The Old Testament writers prophesying that Judas would do this. Someone would betray him. And then Judas being like, nah, nah, I'll change my mind here. And then everything that God had prophesied in his word be undone. Judas was chosen for that purpose. The Bible records that. See, we we come to these Old Testament texts, we come to the New Testament text, and we say, yeah, no problem. We have no problem with that. When When the disciples are called, he comes up to him and he says, follow me. We have no problem with that. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he can do it. Yes, he can choose those things. Nothing comes in your life except it comes across the front desk of God first. We say that, but we don't mean that. You see how inconsistent we become. The Bible does tell us that he did choose us before the foundation of the world. That's when your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the world. There's two passages in Revelation that tell us that. Let us be consistent. Let us be consistent. We don't like that. It goes against what we have been taught. It goes against our feelings. But the God, is, the God of the Bible is the same. He's immutable. This is just an introduction of kind of where we're going, just to give you an idea of what is at stake, where Reformed theology came from after Martin Luther had posted his 95 Thesis, and there was an uprising against the Roman Catholic Church. They went back to Sola Scriptura and realized that it was the rule of faith, not man-made traditions. And their minds and their theology was reformed back to what it was before this darkening of the gospel. You've seen the, the legacy and the tradition of people that have believed this biblical truth. And you've seen that what's at stake is, does the potter have complete freedom to do what he wants with the clay? And the Arminian view has to say no. Because God is limited by us. So we're going to jump, jump ahead in some of these um, some of these podcasts, different episodes, talking about John 3.16. Does John 3.16, what does that really mean? And we'll talk about free will. We'll talk about the golden chain. We'll answer these questions. What is the purpose of life? It's not you. It's not me. It's God. And he's sovereign over it all. Remember, if there's not, if there's one maverick molecule floating through this universe that he's not in control over, then he's not God. If he's 99% God, 99% sovereign, he's not fully God. If he's not fully sovereign over salvation, then it's no longer grace, but a little bit of you in there. And therefore, God can't get all the glory. There's a lot at stake here. And it's all going to be hopefully examined as we dive into this series. I want to leave you with one question. Here's the one question that I've never had anybody answer me. From a biblical standpoint, I bet if we're all honest with ourselves, if we're a Christian, we will say this, that we believe exactly what Psalm 115 verse 3 says, that the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. The God who is omnipresent, he's everywhere, he's omniscient, he knows everything. The God who's immutable, he's unchanging. The God who's has a full aseity, which means he is of himself. He's been from the foundation of the world. There's never been a time where God has not been. And the omnipotent God, who has all power to do as he pleases. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has all power to do what he pleases? I don't know a Christian that would say no. Whatever God wants, he gets. He's God. All things are from him and through him and to him. He sets in the heavens. He does what he pleases. It is all from God. It is all God. There's nothing who can stop him. He has authority in heaven and on earth. God is in full control. He's omnipotent. We believe that in one breath. And that's rightfully so. We should. Listen to this scripture in Isaiah chapter 46. 
as I turn there briefly. In Isaiah chapter 46, 9 through 11, he says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. See what's going on there? He says, listen, I'm not looking ahead to see your permission uh, and seeing your decisions on anything. No, 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 no. You're not sovereign, oh man. I am. There's only one God. He says, I declare, not look ahead and see and wonder and wait for you to see what your decision will be in salvation or anything like that. He says, I declare, I decree the end from the beginning. He knows it. How can he decree it? How can he decree a perfect plan A and then Mary change her mind and Judas blow up the plan or Pharaoh go against it? These things are unbiblical. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. Whatever God wants will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God accomplishes all he wants according to his good pleasure? We say that, yes, we believe the Bible. Yes, we believe it's infallible. We have a text here that says he decrees it from the beginning. His purpose will be established. He'll accomplish all his good pleasure. He says, call in a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Do we believe that God's plan always gets accomplished? Do we believe that God has decreed those things and His purpose will be established and He will accomplish all His good pleasure and everything that He's planned will come to pass? Do you believe that? Every Christian should say that. If you believe that God always gets what He wants and you believe that verse is true, then I have one question to leave you with. If it's God's will that Not all should perish, but come to eternal life. Then why does hell have one person in it? You see, we quote that. That's that's a that's a text to come against the Reformed doctrine. First or second Peter chapter three nine says it says that it's not his will that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What does that mean? What does the all mean? Well, if we put it into context, context, and context, it becomes very clear. You see, what is consistent with Scripture? We can't say in one breath that God's will always gets accomplished. He's omnipotent and nothing can stand in His way. And then in the next verse we read that it's His will, it's, uh, He's not wishing God is not wishing for any to perish. If it was God's wish and he got everything his wish deemed desirable, God's wishing something to happen. I wish all this would happen. If his wish and his will could be that all people are in heaven, if it's his decree that all people repent and be in heaven, then why is not everyone in heaven? That's the question we'll leave you with. I'll read it one more time. Therefore, the the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's the you? We must ask that. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's exactly what will happen. But that's not talking about every single human being that has ever been on the planet. That's talking about a specific group of people, which we'll elaborate on further. If God always gets what He wants... And God wants everyone in heaven. Then why is everyone not in heaven? If we say it's all because we chose, then what we say is that God wanted something. The sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe wanted something. But you, O man, raised yourself up and put a stop to what God had wanted. And if that's our theory, then we've made ourselves sovereign over God. And we need to repent. Ask yourself that question. 
I don't know how many of these podcasts we'll be doing, but we'll try to get into some of these specific questions we've been asked. That's the introduction to it. Um, and we hope that this, again, is uh, done in a very educational manner to at least let the view of Reformed theology and how it's consistent with Scripture be out there um, so that some of the slander and some of the, the, uh, the not knowing the ignorance on these topics um, can be addressed as well. So, again, if you're a believer in Christ, you may believe a little different. Uh, you may have a different view of things. However, we must be careful to love one another and to not destroy and tear down the brother. Because the Bible says if we do that, then we sin against God. And that's not the point of this. This is to educate and to um, explain the doctrines of Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, and at the end of the day, to give God all the glory. So, that we're going to wrap up the first episode here on this. I hope you find it well. And I hope um, that the Holy Spirit begins to open your eyes to the truth of His beauty and the truth of the Bible. Why do you believe what you believe? Could you be wrong? And lastly, does the potter have full right and freedom to do what he wants with the clay?